Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. And we've got a good old-fashioned hodgepodge, a smorgasbord, a, a bit of a, a plethora of topics for you today that don't have any kind of central theme and they're not at all related, just kind of the news of the day if you will. And so there's not a whole lot of time to spend on a couple of these topics. The first one being Britton Doyle. We, I do want to begin there because big congratulations go out. One of the most positive things that happened to the team this year was, of course, the emergence of particularly the defense of Britton Doyle. We all know if you're listening to this, uh, there's a lot of work to be done on the other side of the baseball. But Doyle's defense has been an absolute revelation. He deserved to win this. Again, if you're listening to this, you know the numbers again. I've run over them several times. I've written articles about all of it leading up to. The only news for us would have been if he hadn't won the thing, right? So that was very much a, okay, excellent, good job, congratulations, very much in order. Um, But if anything, it just would have been, quite frankly, absurd had he not won it. So... That's all very, very good. And, you know, I I can see some people being tempted to say, Drew, doesn't this totally disprove your whole theory that, you know, award voters absolutely refuse to give the Colorado Rockies credit for anything ever that they ever do? Uh, They won an award here, particularly when it comes to award voting. That is one of the things where I think biases against this team tend to show up the most. And there is... Certainly an argument to be made here that if you're simply good enough, and Brenton Doyle was, that you'll win the award anyway. Now, of course, we know this is true, right? Larry Walker won the MVP back in 1997 just by being so good that they just couldn't deny it, right? We've always known that such a threshold does exist. But then you've got the second topic, of the day that goes hand in hand with this, right? Which is Nolan Jones not being nominated for Rookie of the Year at all. So simultaneously, we have the voters going, well, you can't deny Brenton Doyle, but somehow denying the season that Nolan Jones just put up. There's really only one legitimate argument in my mind to hold Jones out and that's the he played fewer games than the other guys that got nominated now this is what stopped him from getting nominated for a gold glove on a technicality he just didn't play enough innings and fair enough those it's frustrating but those kinds of technicalities and cutoffs have to exist for a reason you have to put the cutoff somewhere and if you don't make it you don't make it you can only be so upset about that despite the fact that he comfortably finished with the most defensive runs saved in left field he's not going to win the gold glove but The fact that he put up so much more value in less time, in my view, should be an argument in favor of Nolan Jones, not against him. So that's the kind of funny thing is there's one argument to be made against him. As I've said, again, we've dived into the numbers. I've done it in a video form. I've done it in article form. And I've done it before in podcast form that basically rookie of the year should be a neck and neck race between Nolan Jones and Corbin Carroll. Right, Kota Sengai, it's a little bit different when you throw uh, p- pitchers into the mix. And uh, that, that I guess that one's a bit more nuanced and complicated. But in my mind, James Outman just isn't even a part of this conversation. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just not there, right? Nolan Jones and James Outman 
put up basically the same like counting stat numbers despite the fact that Jones played more than 40 fewer games right so all of the the numbers all the advanced metrics the war the OPS plus the WRC plus whatever you want to look into the defensive metrics the, even the stuff that's way over not crediting him you know way over uh, de-emphasizing Coors Field it's still saying that Jones was comfortably the better hitter, obviously the better defense, like all of it across the board. There's really not an argument to be made unless you truly are just of the belief that had Jones played another 40 games, he would have gone into enough of a slump that all of those numbers would have fallen so much. Like even then he was still going to hit more home runs, steal more bases, even if the rate slowed way down right over another 40 or 50 games so this argument just doesn't make any sense to me to say like he just he needed to have put up more stats right because the the stats are just kind of overwhelmingly in nolan jones favor before you even start to get into the you know extrapolate over if he had played more games so to me this one is is fairly egregious if only because there's no downside on Jones's resume here as I was just saying he was the best defensive run saved guy in left field and while you can't give him the gold glove for that the fact that he was the best defensive player in baseball at his position should probably factor into whether or not he should get nominated for rookie of the year then you've got the 20 home runs the 20 stolen bases uh the the pace the war pace all of it and to simply just ignore all of that i think again is indicative that we've still got a long long way to go in fact for me this cracks my top 10 most egregious moments in anti-rockies or anti-coors field bias history and yes i do have a list and another time and in another place uh, i published such a list and and looking back on it I found myself uh, ranking the Jeff Francis Cy Young voting in 10th. And so I I gave it quite a bit of consideration to think, is this worse than that? And I came to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, I, I think that it is for the main reason that we should be far more metrically literate, analytically literate in the year 2023 than we were in 2007 for those of you who aren't familiar jeff francis in 2007 had a pretty darn good year uh he had a 422 era and so and he didn't deserve to win cy young right the problem is that he came in ninth place uh, despite the fact that he had a 114 era plus uh 117 games which used to matter a lot more back then right but he ended up placing behind like relievers who had an era plus of like 105 but of course in 2010 or or 2007 excuse me i I confused that with the ubaldo year in 2007 we didn't really talk about era plus so there's a part of me that can understand that you look at jeff francis's raw numbers you don't really adjust for course field now it was frustrating because that same year people were saying matt holiday doesn't deserve to win mvp because his numbers are inflated by course field so do not at the same time turn around and give any of that credit to jeff francis for being the the eight well 
Ubaldo Jimenez was kind of the ace for being the stalwart, I will say, for being the captain of the rotation of the team that went all the way to the World Series. To not recognize that he was doing it in these tougher circumstances, I always thought, was uh, pretty brutal. But I do understand that they, at the very least, didn't have the tools at the time to give them the language to explain how to adjust for Coors Field. Again, it didn't bother them just hacking off, you know, Matt Holliday's numbers and saying, eh, whatever. But you understand on the flip side. Whereas now, Larry Walker's in the Hall of Fame. Todd Helton's going to get in the Hall of Fame. A lot of work has been done by a lot of people, including, I hope, a little bit uh, myself. I've hopefully contributed to that conversation some over the last decade. In getting people to recognize that you've got to be a little more nuanced with Coors Field than we were back in 2007. And we've made a lot of progress. And then, so Nolan Jones put up a baseball reference wins above replacement of 4.3. James Outman, 3.3. A full win lower despite playing in comfortably more games. That really should be the end of the conversation. OPS Plus, as we've talked about a lot before here, which is a stat that actually underrates Colorado Rockies hitters because it punishes them when they're on the road for Coors Field, which is just mind-bogglingly frustrating at times. But it is one of the best tools we have to adjust for the ballpark, to adjust for the league and the time, and to recognize how much better than the league average you are. Nolan Jones is 138, which is one of the better numbers in recent Rockies memory, not, not just among rookies. Like, Nolan Arenado never put up a 138 here. Never. Trevor Story never put up a 138 here. Right? That's a great number. James Outman's 112. He's better than the league average, but not an elite hit. Like, these numbers aren't even close. And we have the language now. We have the stats now. And we should have the better understanding now. I, I don't think there's any way to come to this conclusion beyond people not wanting to give the Rockies and Nolan Jones credit or they weren't watching or they didn't know. I, I don't. There's not, again, like I said, the only, and I, I've tried really hard to earnestly think of the best possible argument for keeping Nolan Jones off of this. And the only thing I can come up with is the fewer number of games played. But like I said, there's even from most perspectives, from the most reasonable perspective, that should be an argument in his favor that he was an entire win more valuable than James Outman in fewer games played means he's way more valuable. <laughs> like I just, man. So you want to be, you know, like, hey, Brenton Doyle, the Rockies won a big award. And despite the fact that few people watched him play and he couldn't hit his way out of a paper bag for most of the season, they didn't hold that against him and they still gave him the award. Well, he earned the award, but you know what I mean? And then this happens and you go. And it is and it's it's one of those weird things too, kind of like with the Jeff Francis thing where I'm not arguing he should have won the Cy Young Award that year. I'm saying instead of ninth, he probably should have come in like fifth, fourth or fifth, right? With Kyle Freeland in 2018, it was very difficult to make the argument that he should have won over Jacob deGrom, but it was very easy to make the argument that he could, should have come in second instead of fourth. Right. And so sometimes those are weird arguments because ultimately you're not even saying your guy got robbed of winning the award. 
And so I think a lot of people who aren't interested in this conversation or in recognizing that this bias exists are ultimately going to say, dude, Corbin Carroll was the National League's Rookie of the Year. So what does it even matter? You just wanted your guy on the podium or what? And it's like, yeah, actually, yeah, he just deserves to be up there. Look, that that's that's just the the numbers are overwhelmingly in his favor that he deserved to be nominated for Rookie of the Year. And like I said, I always thought you could make an argument that he deserved it over Corbin Carroll for, again, the same reasons of more value in less time. With Carroll, at least, his raw numbers are so impressive and his OPS plus and those things in the war are much closer, right? Where you can say, well, okay, at least these numbers are close. But with James Outman, it's not even, it's frankly not close. And so, yeah, for me, that just edges out uh, the Jeff Francis thing, uh, but it doesn't beat out. Actually, in ninth place, I happen to have the other one that I was just alluding to, Kyle Freeland, which is still worse for me because we did have the language then as well. And the 2018 team was a successful baseball team that had been to the postseason the year before. People should have been paying attention to that team. Uh, they won 91 games. Freeland had been fantastic all year. He was incredible down the stretch. He put up a 240 ERA at Coors Field. A 166 ERA plus that season. And ended up finishing behind like Aaron Nola, who that that Phillies team really crumpled down the stretch and totally fell apart. And he was okay. But again, so the Nolan Jones one isn't quite as bad as that. And above that, I've got another Cy Young loss. Or, or Again, these guys maybe shouldn't have won, but should have come in a little better. And then Ubaldo Jimenez back in 2010. But, man, that thing with Nolan Jones is frustrating. And so I just kind of wanted to run down some of those numbers because while I had talked before about how, you know, I think he'll probably lose out to Corbin Carroll and was fully ready to accept that as a, a reasonable outcome, him not getting nominated at all for Rookie of the Year is not a reasonable outcome. Two other things that I wanted to get to today. One is, okay, now I get a pushback on the narrative a little bit because I've talked before about what I'm starting to call Rocky's derangement syndrome, right? Which is that no matter what the team does, there's going to be a negative spin to it. Sometimes when things are just totally neutral or completely standard, uh, one that comes to the top of my mind was when the Rockies had a little pregame ceremony for it was Mariano Rivera or maybe Albert Pujols was, I was going to say, what was the more recent one? <laughs> Shoot, I'm getting old when that stuff starts to happen. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, and, and it was just the most normal thing ever. And there were a bunch of people on Twitter really mad that the Rockies were like honoring some player that never played for them. But it's like something that they always do. They did it for Pujols. They did it for Rivera. They did it for Derek Jeter. Uh, you know, the Dodgers did a very nice thing for Todd Helton. This is a good thing. It's a standard thing. This is not something that to, to get mad at the team for, right? So sometimes people are just so angry at the Rockies that almost anything that happens can, can lead to a source of anger. But I've also noticed that sometimes, very rarely, probably 1% to 5% of the time, the Rockies derangement syndrome can actually protect them from what would be very legitimate criticism because people are down on everything that the team does. And Clint Hurdle leaving the organization today, I think, is one of those things. Because I think if you polled most Rockies fans right now, and I don't even know at this point in time, you know, how many people are using that phrase to describe themselves, even it's gotten to that kind of place. But I think if you were to poll people who go in the gates at Coors Field, how about that? And you ask them, 
you know, and anything about Clint Hurdle. Do you know who Clint Hurdle is? Uh, do you know what his job is right now? I think most people wouldn't know that he has been working for the Rockies the last couple of years, with, for, whatever. Uh, the Rockies the last few years, right? And, you know, a lot of his job has been a little bit ambiguous, to, even to us, right? He's an assistant to the GM, was, was what he was doing. And so how much credit, but I've been of the belief since before he came into the organization that that was something the Rockies needed to do and that that was a voice that was going to be really helpful in the room. And again, if you're of my mindset, which is that you've seen improvements happening in the front office and kind of behind the scenes in the farm system, uh, some subtle, not overwhelming, but important shifts in mindset and uh, I've talked about Bill Schmidt and how I think he's different than Jeff Bridges and all these things. I, I believe that Clint Hurdle has been a part of that. I believe that there has been a subtle culture shift going on with the Rockies over the last two years that a lot of people haven't been willing to recognize again, partially at least because of this Rockies derangement syndrome thing, which again, the Rockies themselves bring on Rockies derangement syndrome. This should be important when you trade Nolan Arenado, <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing this to people, but it still does distort the view. And in this particular case, I think losing Clint Hurdle is going to hurt this team, but I don't think they're going to catch a lot of fire for it. I don't think they're going to be, you know, hammered in the press or by fans for losing an important member of the organization, because I don't think a lot of people are going to look back on the last two years and say, well, here's how he's been helping them, because most people don't believe that anything good has happened on this team or for this organization in the last two years. So what could they really be losing, right? So like I said, this is one of those rare instances where just kind of not giving the Rockies credit for anything because they've been so bad, because they've legitimately been so bad. But then you don't see any of the little things going on. And, you know, I, I think this is a loss. I, I can't measure it exactly. Uh, it It's only consistent in my logic that, they needed him in the room. They got him in the room. I start to see certain improvements happening with the way the organization uh, talked, particularly the way that the general manager talked, but far beyond all the PR stuff and the quotes, just the way they handle, uh, you know, certain players not panning out well and trading them. And, and since Jeff Breidich, one of the huge differences, by the way, that people haven't recognized in uh, between Jeff Breidich, who was at the bottom of the league every single year in terms of the number of trades that he made, uh, and Bill Schmidt, who's actually been more in the top third since he's taken over. He's made quite a few trades, and uh, especially this season, right? Made four, uh, five of them at the deadline, uh, or four of them at the deadline, and then like a couple right before that. Right? The Mustakis deal came about a month before. And so, for me, it's interesting because now I find myself in the opposite situation of the consensus where I'm like, Rockies might have really messed this one up. Congratulations to Clint Hurdle for getting back on the bench. It looks like he's going to go out and be a bench coach with the Angels and Ron Washington. And they're going to have a fun one. They've also got Eric Young Sr. out there with them. They've got Torrey Hunter. That's a really fun coaching staff. I don't know that it makes up for the fact that they're almost certainly going to lose Shohei Otani. I don't know that he's going to stick around to hang out with Wash. I don't know. Maybe he will. I would imagine the, the money is going to speak there. And they may even offer him a lot of money. But, man, they've been... 
they've been spending a lot of money and losing a lot of baseball games out there in Angel Land for quite a while. So I don't know what that organization does, but I do know it's a fun coaching staff. So <laughs> they're always kind of like fun on paper are the Angels. And then the wins just don't end up coming around. And so, yeah, I think it's a big loss for the Rockies. I hope that whatever... Uh, sort of culture shifts and, and change and mindset and, and wisdom that he offered while he was here uh, can kind of carry through and they they keep going with a bit of of these changes and they can they continue to make more of them right I hope there there isn't a reversion back to a kind of stubbornness need to spend on veteran star caliber or former star caliber players to try to squeeze as many wins out of any individual season that you can and not commit to some sort of plan around a youth movement for the future. But I think they're honestly too far down that path to go back on it now. So we'll see. And obviously this off season will tell us, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding as it were. But I do think this is one of those rare instances. Like it's like the opposite of the David Dahl thing. When David Dahl was uh, DFA'd. I was I was like cut. What was that? He was DFA'd. Ultimately, just cut by the team after he'd been an All Star. Not the season before that, but the one before that. And there was, I mean, just a string of articles about how David Dahl's going to be a future All Star, and there were people and trying to convince me to include it on a list of like the top five top 10 worst decisions the Rockies have ever made. And I was going, you guys, you can't stay on the field. I like David to this day. I always had a good relationship with David and I, I liked his game and he had a ton of potentially couldn't stay healthy, couldn't stay on the field and it sucks. And no one liked it. No one was happy about it, but in hindsight, it was the correct decision. It was the right thing to do. And that has been bore out by the results, right? Whereas on the flip side, you have something like this, which I think is very much just going to go under the radar or how they lost the guy that helped them lose 103 games, you know, which, of course, it's a lot more nuanced than that when you're talking about a front office. So we'll see how it plays out. But I don't think a lot of people are going to be, you know, I don't think there's going to be a string of articles about how the Rockies have lost an extremely valuable member of their front office, even though I think that might be what just happened. And that's that's unfortunate. Of course, we will continue to analyze the front office based on the moves that they make and not based on the quotes. I mean, a little bit based on quotes, but uh, it's it's got to be proof in the pudding, as I've said before. And the final thing that I wanted to touch on very quickly, and thanks to the report from our friends over at Blake Street Banter, who have got to get back on the show sometime soon so that we can talk about minor league updates, because that really is the biggest thing to discuss before you really get into the free agent hunting, though we're going to do that probably simultaneously because it's off season. That's what you do. But down, they have for us uh, some reports on down in the Arizona fall league. Now that that has wrapped up for the salt river Raptors and a few players that I wanted to talk about really quickly. Somebody that they picked up at the trade deadline, Alec Barger relief pitcher, uh, 25 years old, brings an interesting mix, had a very nice nine innings. Again, it's just nine innings, but that's uh, probably, I, I, I didn't put it on here, but nine appearances 
so that's good. Uh, an 096 ERA, 13 strikeouts to two walks, a 096 whip. Very good numbers for Barger. He could be in the mix. Uh, keep that name in mind for spring training next year as we're looking for guys out of the bullpen. Case Williams as a starter who's come in and out of the organization is back in. Somebody Schmidt has liked a lot. Uh, 17 innings pitched with 318 ERA, 16 strikeouts, but nine walks. So that walk number brings his whip up to a 124. A little high there, but you like him keeping uh, the ERA down. He's a guy who could be in the mix for some interesting uh, pitching depth conversations uh, again in spring training next year. For me, he's kind of in that class of guys of uh, like a, a Noah Davis or Ryan Feltner who have never been huge prospects and who don't well Feltner's kind of got huge stuff. Noah Davis doesn't. So a little closer to that where, you know, nothing that really blows you away from a, a profile standpoint, but continues to put up uh, pretty good numbers. There's obviously always ups and downs in the minors, but has had some really, really nice stretches. And so I'm interested to see what the future holds for Case Williams. But the two things to get most excited about are Benny Montgomery and Sterling Thompson. Uh, former number one overall pick, and of course, in Benny Montgomery, and of course, the guy that the Rockies got in exchange for Trevor Story, even though, again, this is one of those things where people think they got nothing in exchange for Trevor Story. Uh, two guys who have been very, very quickly climbing the Rockies prospect lists and the overall prospect lists, and are probably just outside of the top 100 now. 21 games played for Sterling Thompson. He had seven doubles, three triples, 13 uh, runs batted in, seven stolen bases, had a 935 OPS. So very, very nice. He continues to be a great hitter. A little bit unclear where he's going to fit in defensively. Uh, the reports that I've read are pretty mixed on his defense, suggesting that he doesn't bring a lot to the table there. He does have a lot of positions that he can play. If he's not playing any of them well, then it doesn't really matter. Right? He plays some thirds and second, a little bit of corner outfield, but it's unclear uh, what skills he's bringing to the table defensively, maybe a future DH guy or a guy that you can kind of slot in anywhere if he can improve, but yeah, to, to the point where he's not costing you, but then you may need like defensive replacements for him. Benny Montgomery has been a fantastically interesting story since he got drafted. Uh, a lot of people considered him a reach, uh, especially because they've already got some pretty athletic outfielders in the organization. And he brings uh, an elite potential speed and defense combination but a lot of the scouts and players and people that i've talked to just kind of around uh this guy really didn't like his swing when he came into the organization uh i'm not a, a swing expert but even i looking at it could see like big weird hitches in it and it just looked like a far slower swing than what you're used to seeing out of professionals. Uh, he's worked on it a ton. I know that they've done a lot of things. Uh, and then this, but what's interesting is that even kind of right away, the numbers were there. Like he, he hit well his rookie year. And so that kind of got people to go, well, okay. You know, if he's going to hit well, we're, we're at least going to give him some credit for it, but we don't know if the fundamentals are there, but then he did it again his second year. And then this year, Baseball America just came out with this really great thing about how he cut down his strikeout rate and made the best improvements in terms of making contact of anybody in the minor leagues. And now in 19 games in the Arizona Fall League, a couple of doubles and a triple, four home runs, 14 ribbies, 10 stolen bases, a 936 OPS. So 
I've kind of logged Benny Montgomery into my mind as another Brenton Doyle, um, which is fine, which is something that absolutely has value. And, you know, they, they, they need those incredibly athletic, incredibly capable and incredibly fast outfield defenders, right? We, we know that, but do they need two of those guys? Ultimately, if they really are crossovers and, and there's too much of the same, you can pick one to trade and, and go with the other, right? Let that be a problem for whenever it happens down the road. But if Benny Montgomery is going to hit, if he's making these leaps and bounds of improvement with the bat, the Rockies could have another prospect here who's going to jump into the top 100. And if he really takes off, maybe even better than that. Again, there maybe there's a reason the Rockies took this guy with the number one overall pick and they believe that they were going to be able to work on that swing so we'll see what happens with that but i've gone from you know i know a lot of people that hated that pick and i didn't love it i didn't immediately like a lot of other first round picks that the rockies have made in the last couple of years zach veen chase dollander where immediately i went yes good great that guy's a top two or three prospect in the organization right now and is it was the right thing to do when they took benny montgomery i was like well that's not what i you know i would have taken pitching as i've talked about i mean i would almost always take pitching and even just like i said earlier they've got athletic outfielders uh you know it was a, it was clear it was going to be a project but now it looks like the Rockies have dedicated themselves to that project. Benny Montgomery appears to have dedicated himself to that project. And now that I see in real time the value of having just watching, as I talked about, those of you who listen to the podcast right after these games remember how over the moon I was about when Brenton Doyle and Nolan Jones start, first started playing right next to each other. And what a massive difference it was making at Coors Field. Now, it wasn't ultimately making a difference in the outcomes of a lot of the games because if the bullpen allows them to hit the ball over the wall, you, you can't go catch it. But with a better bullpen, the Rockies would have won a lot of games down the stretch because of those guys running the ball down in the corners at Coors Field. And if you keep adding guys who can do that, it's only going to be better and better for you. So I've been counting on Zach Veen, and I've been counting on Yankel Fernandez. I was not counting on Benny Montgomery, but now I'm starting to think this guy could be another one of those dudes in that category. And that that's pretty fantastic. His stock is hot, hot on the rise. And the Rockies, who already have five guys in the top 100, also have now these two in Sterling Thompson and Benny Montgomery, like knocking on the door. In fact, I'd be shocked if when the next top 100 list comes out, that at least one, if not both of them are on there. So those are the topics of conversation for today. I appreciate you all listening into this episode of 20th and Blake. Like I said, next time we're going to do some free agent talk. And then shortly thereafter, we've got to do a whole lot of minor league talk for you as well. So thank you for listening into this episode. I hope you will continue to be absolutely awesome out there. You know that I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.